the Daily Rios for June 7th, 2013. It's Feedback Friday. Received some great feedback this past two weeks, some that I want to share today. Uh, others that I'm actually going to hold on to, mostly because they weren't about anything in particular. They were just missives from li- listeners who wanted to send notes of encouragement about what is going on here uh, with the podcast, and I appreciate that. I really do. I thought they were some great uh, messages that I received, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to save these for myself because they're inspirational me. Keep me going. Feedback is the currency of podcasters, as Comic Book Noises' Derek Coward so aptly puts it. So please, if you have a favorite podcast or just one that you really enjoy and that you listen to often, send them feedback, whether it's an email, a voicemail, an audio recording, even if it's just to say thank you or tell them what your listening habits are. You know, maybe you listen to a podcast while working out or cutting the grass or commuting. Uh, Let them know that people are listening, and they will find that so rewarding. It's such a great, great thing. So, in the past two weeks, the Daily Rios had episodes on, uh, well, of course, New Comics Wednesday. Uh, We did a driving and talking episode about Wizard World Philly. I dropped Tower Episode 10, which was the unaired episode, a two-year-old unaired episode, finally released. Uh, I had a couple Thursday thoughts. I did an episode with plans for this month of June, a Musical Monday, a return to Musical Monday with Bye Bye Birdie, and then an episode titled Tell Me What You Eat, taking a look at my Wizard World Philly stash, uh, looking at the comics and, and seeing if I could figure out where my comic buying interests are, or if the listeners could make suggestions about that pile of comics or... Um, you know, what it says about me as a comic collector, what I enjoy, etc. So we are, we're actually going to start there with uh, an email from Jerry McMullen, who I met uh, during Planet Comic Con years back. And he says, I took the time to sit back and listen to the list of books that you picked up at the Wizard World Philly show. My initial reaction when you mentioned certain books, in particular, Doctor Strange 55, Green Arrow 30, and Teen Titans 42 was, I'm wondering what volumes those are. Is that Doctor Strange from the 70s or from the early 1990s? With Green Hour, are we talking Mike Grell or Judd Winnick? With Teen Titans, is this the Bob Haney issue or the Jeff Johns issue? Thankfully, your comments further along in the podcast provided me the details that I needed. So based on my reaction, I am obviously cognizant enough to know that there are multiple volumes of the same titles from different eras. I do pay attention to creators, specifically writers, and the comic book guy in me obviously wants more details before I can provide a proper critique. Very cool, and yeah, you know, I didn't think, but of course the listeners would have their reactions to that list in ways that I may not have had, uh, especially before I actually jumped into my observations on that episode. And for Jerry, it was about needing more info and knowing that some of those titles had multiple volumes. And where did they fit in? What does that mean? Certain volumes mean things to other listeners and other comic collectors than they do with from other people, you know? Um, Flash during the Mark Wade run it feels different and is going to be reacted to in a different way than Flash during Jeff Jones's run or Carrie Bates's run or uh, Mike Barron's run. So, very interesting 
uh, or Will, William Messner Loeb's. I think he also wrote some Flash too. I might be thinking of Wonder Woman. Anyway, um, so that was cool. That was cool to see that that was something that jumped out to him right away. And I have to imagine that there are other loose thoughts out there like that, quick initial gut reactions from listeners, and I'd be very interested in hearing more of those. From Adam in Australia, this is off of Tumblr, and this is about musicals, and this isn't, I don't necessarily know if Adam listens to the Daily Rios, but he follows my Tumblr, and he asked this question that I thought would be interesting to bring to the show, and he says, Hi Peter, my name is Adam, I have a musical question, I'm going to go see Legally Blonde, and it's gotten me thinking about the movie to musical movement. Is this craze a result of the producer's deserved success, lazy writing, or some new sub-genre? Because I find the concept a little bewildering. So he's asking about taking a movie and making it into a musical and the craze and this whole movement about it. And what does it mean? So I wrote back to him on my Tumblr and I thought I'd just read my response. I said, it's something Broadway has tried on and off for a while. After mining books and plays... And after the movie musical died out, it was time to start mining movies for Broadway or for the stage. 42nd Street and Singing in the Rain hit Broadway in the 80s. The former was a hit. The latter, surprisingly, on stage was a flop at first. Little Shop of Horrors was a cult hit. Nine, based on Fellini's Eight and a Half, had a decent small run. Those were all 80s. In the 90s, they gave us more. Beauty and the Beast, of course. Although Disney feels more like a stage attraction more than anything else. Uh, Footloose, Big, Saturday Night Fever. As you say, the producers, Mel Brooks's The Producers, which went on to win so many awards and become a smash hit, um, that it hit big. And maybe because the creators found ways to really push, push producers into the musical format. They didn't just try to create what was on the stage. They embellished it. They changed things. Um, And I think a lot of that was the success of why Producers was so big. Now, Producers in general, meaning backers and stuff, they obviously tried to reinvent the wheel of success that Producers and Hairspray had because it meant giving audiences something familiar to start with. So if you're familiar with Producers the Movie, if you're familiar with Hairspray the Movie, and then suddenly it's on Broadway, well, you might go see it because you are somewhat familiar with it. They act as, uh, those kind of shows act as draws to Broadway, where original works can really be risky. So movies that were already musicals seem to attract a certain crowd to Broadway, and there are pluses and minus to that, minuses to that, obviously. Um, there are certain movies that have hit Broadway that seem to do well, Mary Poppins, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Newsies, even Billy Elliot and Xanadu, right? But those kind of already were musicals, even in movie form. And then you have those musicals, uh, or excuse me, you have those movies that are kind of about music, kind of about dance, um, more as themes, but they're not truly musical movies, and those translate so-so to the stage. Now, that would be shows like Footloose and Wedding Singer, High Fidelity, Urban Cowboy, and a lot of those had varying degrees of success. And then there are those movies 
that are dragged kicking and screaming from the screen to the stage, whether we like it or not. The upcoming Rocky. Yes, they're making Rocky into a musical. It's already a musical, actually. Uh, it's just waiting to come to Broadway. Carrie, Stephen King's Carrie, which was a flop. Uh, the movie Big, Tom Hanks' Big, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Ghost, Elf, and, like Adam said, Legally Blonde. And again, some of these had different ranges of success. Most of them were not so good. Most of them still aren't so good, whether they're, they're on Broadway or not. But they're popular with high schools, again, because they have a certain draw just because of the name. So, the stage production of The Producers did seem to be a good mark for this latest push into the idea of making movies into stage productions. And um, it goes up and down. It really does. Just like making movies out of stage productions, you know, such as Chicago, Dreamgirls, um, Les Mis, and there's supposed to be a, a whole bunch down the works. I think Into the Woods is coming to the movie theaters. So I'm sure when the next movie to musical hits big, I'm sure we'll even see more, and, uh, you know, that's okay, it brings people to New York, it brings people to Broadway, um, but I'm always happy when something totally new comes out of the blue, some musical with an original idea, think of something like Book of Mormon, or Avenue Q, or You're in Town, all hits, all original works, on Broadway that someone took a chance and they paid off. You know, we need more good ones like that so that, uh, um, you know, the, the Broadway musical can stay alive, even though it always will. But if, we're find, if we can find people who are willing to fund those kind of things, fund these unknown projects, well, that's pretty awesome. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Here's an older feedback that I've been... Holding on to on the to-do list for a while. This is from Hassan, Hassan T. On the good and bad of comics and social media. Referencing an older episode I put out a while back. He says, I wanted to send out a quick email about your discussion about social media. Overall, I think it is a good thing. It has allowed people that have similar interests to get to know each other without travel outside their home base. It has allowed me to get to know you better. It has allowed me to become friends with people that I would never have met because of social media and podcasts. That said, there is a negative side to social media. One, too much inside baseball discussion, something that you mentioned. There seem to be a small, loud minority that only care about the gossip and not the actual books published. These are the same people that would post or tweet negative comments on books that they are not even reading. Number two, creators and editors who appear to be jackasses online. People think that John Byrne recently became the negative creator that hates everything over the past few years. As I mentioned, as you mentioned, this is not true. He always has been that way. Fortunately, before social media, a lot of readers never realized it. You pointed out certain people like Mark Wade that attack other creators. If someone continually attacks people, after a while, you realize that maybe that person is the problem. Now, I am not saying that everyone has to like each other, but you don't have to be so public about your hatred, nor do you have to attack people who disagree with you. By the way, if you do attack people, then you have no right to criticize people for being fanboys. Number three, people on Twitter that only exist only to respond to known or famous people with the hope that they respond back. They have no unique voice, and they look pathetic. 
Thanks, Hassan. You know, it's an interesting notion, and I think I held on to this email for other reasons, but some of my thoughts have taken a little bit of a turn since that initial episode, mostly because of a few different, well, a few different things happened. Not necessarily what Hassan is talking about, but we've been getting some vocal creators, uh, creators who are speaking up on quitting mainstream comics. We've had older creators fighting for rights and royalties. Um, then we had the reactions to the most recent Game of Thrones episode this weekend. And spinning all of this stuff around in my brain, sitting back and kind of watching it over the past few weeks and months, I've, I've sort of come to the realization that the immediacy of it all, the at the fingertips and write, write out 140 characters and put it out on Twitter and it goes out, all, out into the social world, is it, it's still good and it's still bad, but it's still good, you know? Now, the bad of all of this, in my mind, is when a story breaks and we get the immediate quick uh, judgment in people's reactions to whatever that story is. Someone tweets something, the full story isn't even out, and already people are crucified with very little knowledge, right? Blame is placed without really knowing the target, and it feels all very dogpile on the rabbit. What's equally bad about that, I find, is once the story is told, and perhaps it's not as bad as we think, and we find out that it wasn't so-and-so's fault or whatever the reason, I'm not even thinking of a, like a specific topic, I'm just kind of, you know, generalizing or we learn that the situation wasn't anything to begin with, very few of those people who did dogpile on the rabbit, very few of them ever apologize. Very few of them take down their initial reactions, their tweets. Uh, they sweep it under the rug, they ignore it, they never go back, they shrug their shoulders, they move on, or they excuse it and say, well, it didn't happen that time, but I'm sure it'll happen again, right? But then the words are out there, and you sort of feel like, well, you know, you kind of jumped the gun on that. I find that very weird and very dishonest and irresponsible, and um, I tend to unfollow a lot of those people, you know? Own up. Own up if you've made a mistake. I think the most recent example I could give is the dust-up between Don McGregor and Dynamite Comics over Lady Rawhide. And... Uh, Dynamite was going to put out a Lady Rawhide book, and Don McGregor wasn't given any kind of credit, at, at least that we knew at the time. Someone mentioned this to Don McGregor because I guess he created Lady Rawhide or had a hand in it, the character and the title. And basically that fan fanned the flames, hence the name fandom, right? Fan the flames and made this huge mountain out of a mohill. And it all turned out to be nothing more than, hey... We didn't get to Don yet, you know, but it really wasn't as nefarious as some people were trying to make it out to be. But some fans and some followers, because of older creators getting screwed a lot, whether it's in the news with uh, Schuster and Siegel or elsewhere, because that sort of discussion is going around, they immediately thought the worst and they immediately thought, thought Dynamite was doing the same thing. You know, and it made Don McGregor kind of come out in a bad light because he was jumping on that bandwagon and realizing, you know what, the publisher publisher just hadn't even gotten to him yet. So there's a there's a an example of something, an immediate example that I think 
kind of speaks to the negative aspect of um, that kind of mentality. You know, I'm the first one to uh, agree with that saying or proverb or, or whatever it is. It, it's something like, if one king says there's smoke, then there's room for doubt. If 50 kings say that there's smoke, then you better realize that there's probably fire somewhere, right? Something, it, it goes something like that. And that's kind of what I've been feeling lately with all of the creators that have come out and talked about the current affairs of working at DC and Marvel. Uh, most certainly with the latest Paul Jenkins interview on CBR and elsewhere, where he talks at length about his move out of mainstream comics. And if you haven't read it, you really should. I'll try to link to it in the show notes, you know. He didn't go out in a blaze of fury the way Rob Liefeld did on Twitter that one month, where Rob Liefeld was ranting and tossing grenades in every direction. Um, Paul Jenkins is a little more thought out. You can definitely feel the disappointment in, in his words. It's rational. It makes you think. And to give him credit, it's not... Uh, a short, little, vague, 140-character tweet that everybody then gossips and speculate, speculates on. It's a long interview, and he gives his reasons, and he gives his culpability and his responsibility to himself as a creator and writer. It's fascinating. It's one of the better examples of, of knowing too much behind the curtain that I've seen. Um, and it does. It, it, it makes, it's one more voice that makes you realize, told in a way that warrants... Uh, attention, right? Again, it's not something off the cuff. It's an interview. It's a long interview. It's a long article. And it sort of makes you realize, okay, you know, this is yet the another king, quote-unquote, who is giving his voice to these rising tensions of working at DC and Marvel. And um, it's interesting. It's just an interesting read, you know? And, and then it's your reaction and your um, right to take those words and maybe not read Marvel and DC, or maybe you continue to read Marvel and DC for different reasons, or you support these creators as they move elsewhere. I don't know. So, and then the Game of Thrones thing. Uh, you know, I used to fight this whole thing about being on Twitter and people spoiling on Twitter, spoiling shows. I'm not going to spoil Game of Thrones because I haven't even watched it. I want to read the books first. But in the end, what I've come to realize it's is that this is really the current mode of discussion for, for, for a lot of people. This Twitter is now the forum for most people that enjoy these kind of um, TV shows and geekdom and, and elsewhere, and not even about that, sports and you name it, anything, any topic. And it's a wave you can't really ignore. It's how people are expressing their reactions and their amazement. And why wouldn't we want to join in, right? You know, think of that. Real-time communal conversations of your favorite shows, of your favorite sports, movies, whatever, music, without going to a forum, without going to your comic shop, without going to work. It's all right there uh, at your fingertips. And Twitter is now the new forum. And like they say, you either have to stay off of it at those times or you got to keep up on your show and watch it as fast as you can so that you don't get spoiled. Um, you know, that's a, a little bit of a negative that is, I think turned into a, a slight slight positive because that is what's fun about all of this stuff, you know? My biggest thing about 
uh, comic reading in single issues versus trades is that I like to read single issues because I can talk. I can use that to talk in the larger discussion that's going on. I don't have to wait uh, for the trade to come out. And by that time, the discussion of whatever that comic is has already passed. And I think that's the same thing going on here. So interesting topic, uh, Hassan, to bring up again and something that had been buzzing in my head. So I'm glad I was able to dip back into the feedback pool and bring all that up. All right, just a few more here. We have Tony. He said, nice using Joseph Campbell on that latest Thought for Thursday episode. He has some very interesting things to say about religion and how it all relates to one another. Always found the connection he makes to Carl Jung's theory of the collective unconscious fascinating. And he's talking about yesterday's episode that I put out, a short snippet of Joseph Campbell's work, if you didn't recognize the speaker's voice. And it wasn't exactly the clip that I wanted. I wanted something where Joseph Campbell talks about his hero's journey narrative and what that means in literature and mythology and and elsewhere. Um, but it was the closest I could come to something that uh, I, I think about on and off. And uh, I do find a lot of those theories fascinating and on a very surfacey level. I haven't really dug into it. But um, uh, I was just glad that someone knew where that clip came from. I always like when somebody knows where those random clips come from because I don't give any description on it. And I don't want to because I want you to really listen to the words, not necessarily care, not necessarily care about who's saying those words, if that makes sense. So, Tony, thanks for picking that up. I really, I, I, I just thought that was cool that, that you got that. Uh, and I'm sure others have as well. Uh, Chris Beckett on New Comics Wednesday says, Astro City and Solo are two big favorites of mine. I remember after the fallout of Marvels, Busiek was starting up Astro City and Untold Tales of Spider-Man. That was when I really took notice of his work, and I've been a big fan of him since. And Solo is easily one of my favorite series of the past number of years. Along with Batman Black and White and Wednesday Comics, Mark Chiarello is one of the few editors who seems to want to make work within the mainstream world, if I may utilize that overused phrase, that I want to read. Steve Wacker is another editor who works on books I want to read, regardless of his sometimes unprofessional online persona. Speaking of Batman Black and White, I did that New Comics Wednesday episode, talked about Mark Chiarello, and they just announced that they're putting out yet another Batman Black and White special. I think it's about six issues, six issues long, and there's a whole bunch of people on it. And I think that's great that they're bringing it back, because I know it's a favorite of some people. So yay, yay for Batman Black and White making a return. And also on that same episode, James Kaplan says, Astro City was great, like having an old friend return. Everything I've ever read by Kurt Busiek has so much humanity to it. And when James said that word, humanity, he, he put it out on a tweet. That's what I was really looking for, that word, to describe Astro City back on that New Comics Wednesday episode. That is a great word to describe that book. There's a lot of humanity to it. In this tale uh, and this comic about superheroes and craziness, the, it's all really about the people who live in Astro City or who come to Astro City and the humanity of it uh, from their level and their eyes looking up into the world of superheroes and the superheroes looking down at the people that they protect. It just That's a perfect way to describe it. So thank you, James. And lastly, dipping also dipping into something I should have talked about months ago, weeks ago, Alex Sarah, one of my favorite uh, creators, uh, and, and people who's just, you know, just a cool guy to look at. I love his artwork, um, especially on, um, the Johnny DC book, Legion of the Legion of Superheroes in the 31st Century. You can find his work at alexandersarahart.blogspot.com. I'll provide a link. 
He has a webcomic that is over at SaturdayMorningWebtoons.com that you can download, and it's called uh, The Tried and Failed Gang, Treasure Troubles. And it's written and illustrated by Alexander Sarah, and it's about, um, it says here, The Hunt is On, A Treasure Hunt, that is. The Tried and Failed Gang, Treasure Troubles, is a story about an entire city getting caught up in the chase to find the prize, including a group of young kids who are putting their heads together to be the first to find it. And you can download uh, the free PDF right off the site. I will provide a link. And... Uh, you can read it and see what you think. So, and check out his blog spot. He hasn't up, updated it in a in a little while, but he has fantastic Legion of Superheroes artwork on there, in a very um, DC animated or Johnny DC way. Uh, I just dig his stuff. I, I I think it's creative and fun. And um, he did a bunch of uh, character sketches based on the Endless, uh, Delirium, and Death. Uh, here's a here's the Vision, Supergirl. Um, a whole bunch of other stuff, um, Batgirl, Medusa, and of course all the Legion of Superhero stuff that I really enjoy. So check out those things if you would, and uh, you know show show that um, he's getting some hits. Try out the webcomic and uh, see what you think. All right, that's it for this week. That's it for these past two weeks. Uh, that's it for another Feedback Friday. You can reach me up here at thedailyreels.com. Have a great weekend. Be safe. Have a fun Heroes Con if you're down there. And I will talk to you all on Monday.